This week in the Enterprise Security News, how RSA Conference 2021 has changed its dates from February to May. Docker partners with Sneak on container image vulnerability scanning. Venify acquires JetStack to bring together developer speed and enterprise security. Onapsis expands assessments for its business risk illustration service. Volterra launches VoltShare, simplifying the process of securely encrypting confidential data. All that and more in that segment. In the second segment, Dan DeClos, president and CEO of PlexTrack, will talk about managing enterprise security assessments all in one place. In our final segment, DJ Sampath, the co-founder and CEO of ArmorBlocks, will talk about dealing with phishing attacks that are outside of email. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. The Viavi Solutions Observer Platform provides SecOps teams a powerful combination of comprehensive data for threat hunting and incident response that includes wire data analytics and enriched flow records. Using pure, unaltered packet and net flow, Observer presents views across the entire IT infrastructure with threat alert features including scope, impact, and advanced traffic profiling. Teams can use automated workflows to dive into high-fidelity network evidence and more quickly resolve issues, minimizing impact on customers, users, and business operations. Learn more about the Viavi Network Security Solution and download free resources at securityweekly.com forward slash Viavi. That's V-I-A-V-I. You want to get the right things done for your security program. Sounds simple. But what are the right things for you? What does done mean? And how are you going to get there? Rapid7 realizes more than anyone how hard this can be. While Rapid7's Insight platform offers you industry-leading vulnerability management and detection and response solutions, their focus is on understanding where you are so that they can help you get where you're going. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Rapid7 to get started. Welcome to episode 184 of Enterprise Security Weekly for May 20th, 2020. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, joined remotely from the Science Lab, Mr. John Strand. Hello, happy to be here. It's finally summer here, which is great. It was like snowing last time I was on the show, and now right. it's like 80 degrees. It's beautiful. That's awesome. From our remote studios in Colorado, Mr. Matt Alderman is here with us. Matt, welcome. Happy Wednesday, hump day, right before a long holiday weekend. That's it. That's it. Uh, join us for InfoSec World 2020, June 22nd through the 24th, a now fully virtual event. Our listeners receive 15% off the InfoSec World Conference uh, or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW 2020. Click the register button to register with our discount code. Also, Security Weekly mailing list, uh, we invite you to join our list, receive invites to our Discord community. You can visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe, join the list, as well as subscribe to all of our other shows on the network. And now, the Enterprise Security News. Where'd you guys want to start? You were talking a lot about containers, right, as I was getting excited I, I, for the I show. I say we go in order. Let's talk about the Scout. That's the one that I think that we got the most excited about out of the gate. Yeah, so it has, and we don't often cover it this way, but an acquisition has failed to materialize. An acquisition of Forescout for $1.9 billion? 
Yeah, which makes total sense with the world changing as quickly as it did. Um, oh, yeah. This is something Matt and I were yeah. talking about. It's just this I, – they lost almost a billion dollars in value because everybody's wow. working from home right now. And I love Forescout. I want to make it very clear. As a pen tester, you go into a network if they have good network access control, even though Forescout hates it whenever I call their product NAC. NAC yeah, because they try and not call it NAC because it got a bad no, reputation, no. but it's NAC. I mean, let's- it's NAC. It's just really good NAC. Um, whenever it's implemented, it's working well. It is a very solid, formidable product to deal with. But how the hell do you sell something like Forescout if all of your people are literally working remotely? Good luck if- with that. NAC's intent is to authenticate people before they join the network. If you're remote and you use a VPN, it does that inherently. It does. But one of the things I, I wish Forescout would do is if you do have people connecting to the VPN, do the Forescout type checks before they're actually allowed onto the rest of the corporate network. Agreed. Cisco, like struggled with, right. Cisco struggled with that. And I'm not sure what it looks like today because I haven't done a VPN implementation uh, to yeah. that level in some time, right? Like WireGuard's awesome. Yeah. It's easy to set up for small groups or individuals, right? But at an enterprise level, um, I, I don't know. I would lean more towards uh, Netscope, and I think we have something from uh, Illumio. Is no, not Illumio. Illumio. Uh, maybe someone oh, else different. similar in that space, right? It's uh, basically the SD WAN uh, component. Um, yeah. Whatever Six Terra became, Matt knows. Oh, Six Terra. Um, uh, AppGate, I think, is what App they're Gate. called now, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, I would look at that yeah. technology. Yeah, I, I just feel uh, bad. So for I, I oh, do too. So, I mean, the the interesting part about this is the deal was announced in February. Before, obviously, we went through the last few months. Um, valuation at the time made sense, right? Mm-hmm. Now, here we are, three months later, still trying to figure out what's going on in this new world. And to John's point, look. If nobody's on your network, it's really hard to justify acquiring a network access control product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the valuation dropped from 1.9 to 1.05 billion, which put the deal upside down, right, mm-hmm. for the private equity firm. Right. Um, and, yep. and look, I don't think this is the only company that goes through this kind of same um, uh, evaluation either. I think there's other public companies sitting out there that could. Ha- see some of the same potential issues. And I think there's a ton of private companies that are looking for funding that may also fall into this bucket as well, unfortunately. But you know, this is just the reality of where we are today. Mm. Well, and there's some things in this article that I think are interesting. Um, one of the paragraphs in here is the sentence on its own. It said, if the deal is eventually canceled, then the buyers will be required to pay for scout compensation of 112 million dollars and i and i i hate to say this but that's a bargain for that investment firm to get the hell away from them right um at this point and that's a horrible thing to say because like i said i love for scout but there's no way that that company that was going to buy them was ever going to see a return on investment on that and it's hard to be that large and make a pivot because they they certainly Mm -hmm. if they have awesome technology they could certainly pivot right but that's Holy crap, they, a company that well, Yeah, they made a couple acquisitions in the ICS space to try to pivot yeah. into the mm. OT side of the house. But again, you're right, Paul. It's very difficult for a large company, and, but that, especially a large and, public company, yes. to pivot. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to justify almost $2 billion in Agreed. value. Agreed. Yeah. So we, we got really lucky on this. I, I, I think about it. We, uh, 
um, with, with, with active countermeasures, we actually started in October, I was telling Matt this, to basically starting to pull network traffic uh, information off of endpoints. Mm-hmm. So we basically, as soon as COVID hit and everyone started working from home, we're like, holy crap, we totally dodged that bullet. Um, and it's been working pretty well for us. But there's so many companies, like Matt said, larger companies, they can't pivot that quick. Yep. Agreed. Docker has partnered with Sneak on container image vulnerability scanning. Can I say finally somebody? Yeah. Um, I mean, DTR has been a train wreck from like day one almost. I mean, g- looking at the Docker Trusted Registry, the scan results were never really that no, good. They weren't. Sneak is a partner of ours on Application Security mm-hmm. Weekly. I think they do a fantastic job of understanding. Uh, all the third-party library dependencies, including the dependencies of dependencies of dependencies. Right. They call those um, transient, transient yeah. dependencies, right? Which I had not yes. really uh, considered with this problem until we were doing a briefing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a great point, actually. Because how many of us have been in dependency hell, right? Whether it's you know Every time. software or just open source you know, operating systems, whatever, or writing your own software, it's it's all the time. Uh, and well, it's challenging to get it working and then understand the dependencies of dependencies and down that train, which one might introduce a vulnerability. Well, and this is just a new way of thinking about everything. I, I was surprised um, when you were talking about containers and sandboxing. Um, I started playing around with Flatpak. Have you played around with that at all, Paul? No. What is Flatpak? Yeah, it, it, Flatpak is F-L-A-T-P-A-K. Is basically you can create a you can create an app distribution, and it's completely containerized and sandboxed. So you don't have to worry about the dependencies for the operating system. Everything basically comes with that standalone app. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a little container, but for desktop applications. Mm. And the reason why I bring this up is this whole idea of containers and scanning containers and going all the way through that. It isn't just this thing that's going to be in the cloud. You're going to see it on the desktops here soon. Yep. And really, we have to get better at being able to scan and look at vulnerabilities in these things than we are right now. I, yeah. I really wish there was really great software on windows that could do that for applications i think there's a lot of research and certainly some products on the market that do that but they all have somewhat shortcomings i think john is what we've Mm -hmm. been finding oh yeah even what microsoft has is application specific to edge uh and it Mm -hmm. changes like they introduce things and then they back you know back it out kind of thing i think microsoft is pretty well poised uh to have a great containerized system for applications on windows and they have some of that today right I don't I don't think that they've had to deal with it much. So I think that's one of the reasons why they've been so sluggish. If you're looking at the Linux community, yeah. um, just all the different distributions that exist and making sure that your product is basically compatible for all those distributions can be very difficult. Uh, if you're going to, even from like Debian to Ubuntu to Mint, mm. and working, once again, looking at the desktop aspect, you can totally have applications that'll work on one but won't work on another. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Windows is behind the curve, but I've been curious to see what happens with the Windows subsystem for Linux 2.0 coming out that now has a full Linux kernel shipping mm-hmm. with every single Windows system, has the capability for full X Windows applications, has the capability for the DirectX drivers to be down to those applications. So that might be part of the reason why Microsoft is making such a huge push on this mm-hmm. is it, it, it now opens up that entire platform to handle Windows apps and all the Linux apps as well. Um, so I think that that's a pretty interesting move that Windows has been making in this direction as well. Well, and along the lines of Windows containers, um, Anchor Security, uh, who I've looked at some of their stuff, uh, I think does a great job with container security, uh, has announced support for Windows containers. And these are, from what I've read, Windows containers running on a Docker platform because they make references to Docker uh, in this article. So I thought that mm-hmm. was yeah, interesting. Yeah, 
I mean, Docker and Microsoft has always had a really tight relationship. What I haven't seen, and, and John and I were talking about this beforehand, I haven't seen a large adoption of Microsoft containers, though. Right. So I'm not quite, I, I mean, look, if you're going to use Microsoft containers, here's a solution for you. I just don't know how many people are actually deploying Microsoft containers. Is that does, Now, when I looked into it, it looked like Windows had to be the host operating system to run Windows containers. Yeah, you, there's a couple different very. There's a couple different variations. There's .NET Core that I believe you can run on Linux, mm -hmm. but if you're in a true .NET environment, then you need Windows. So right. there's some nuances there, Paul. Yeah. Well, I think it it represents an awesome future for you know Windows operating systems running inside of containers and deploying them just like we do Linux containers. It, it's great. Mm -hmm. In fact, might even be some security benefits to that to be quite honest. And when I look at the container breakouts, they're of course very specific to Linux and take advantage of a lot of fundamental Linux just shortcomings, right? Like Linux capabilities is what a lot of the um, uh, kernel breakouts or breakout exploits for, for containers on Linux rely on. Yeah, and what's interesting with Windows containers is the technologies we're using on Linux containers don't really cross over. Now, right, unless, yeah. again, you're looking at .NET Core, you're looking at the Linux kernel embedded in there, then you can. But there's a whole new set of capabilities that have to be built. When we were at Layered Insight, we were getting rumblings from customers about what are you going to do for Microsoft containers? Because mm -hmm. it's a different tech stack that you have to build yes. solutions for. But again, back then, we didn't see enough... Adoption. Uh, adoption to really justify us building something. So it, it, it's an adoption issue, I think, at this point. Uh, salt stack, uh, 20 breaches within four days. Oh, this is kind of an interesting article. Um, salt stack has, has, has been a partner with us in the past. Uh, great technology, former coworker of ours, uh, is one of the leads over there, Mayhole. Um, and this is by no means an attack on their response. In fact, the article calls out SaltStack for having a fan, yeah, how they did a fantastic job. Look, everyone that writes software, you've got bugs, you've got vulnerabilities, right? Whether they're your own or they come from some other library, you've, you've got bugs and vulnerabilities, right? Um, and their um, response was fantastic. The vulnerability was kind of interesting because it affected publicly accessible SaltStack servers and was so easy to exploit um, that SaltStack basically called it. Like, look, if you don't apply this patch that we've created for you, we got it out, it's a working patch, uh, you're, you're going to get owned. And people did because they didn't apply the patch. Well, and, and this also gets into the much larger issue of kind of where everything is going, right? Um, if you're looking at deployments of SaltStack, SALT People once again believe that whenever they install these application stacks, that somehow they're going to be more secure because it's in the cloud, because they right. like to say that they're doing DevOps. But the fact is, you know, we can sit down and we can spend five minutes on um, Shodan going through and looking for salt, salt stack implementations and very quickly identifying them and then identifying whether or not they'd be vulnerable to these types of things. The same type of thing happened with Mongo database a number yep. of years ago where it, where it deployed default out of the gate with no security or elastic map reduce clusters that I've talked about on this mm -hmm. show. And I, I have this problem where it's getting easier and easier to deploy applications, 
but it's getting harder and harder to actually start securing those applications and kind of wrangle those applications. And I feel like organizations are definitely leaning towards cloud deployment ease well above and beyond any security. And yep. one of the reoccurring themes in the show that I talk about all the time is we talk about a lot of these vendors. And as the owner of a pen testing company, I'm not seeing these vendors in the cloud uh, mm -hmm. all that much. That doesn't mean that they're not selling their product at all. It's just not making as much of an impact in the uh, cloud environments as we need to see in this industry, because we basically have taken all security, stripped it away, threw crap against the cloud, and hope that it's going to actually be secure when the reality of it is it's not going to be that way. You do need security controls around these different apps. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and you said it. It's, it's at the apps, mm -hmm. right? I, you mm -hmm. know, I think the challenge a little bit here is this shift from dedicated infrastructure to platforms and other cloud services, John, and this whole misunderstanding of what am I responsible for, what are the cloud responsible for. The higher levels in the stack are things you have to cover when you're in the cloud, it, it just doesn't matter. And configuration well, to me plays a much more important role in the overall um, ecosystem than in these infrastructure environments because there's so many different components that are interacting. And if one is misconfigured, it opens up a huge hole from an attack perspective. Well, and, and the other thing that I'm finding, and Matt, I'd love to get your take on this, is whenever I'm talking to organizations, let's just talk about DevOps, because that's usually a, the smoke test to find out if something's even somebody's even interested in this as a topic. I usually find in a company, they'll have one, maybe two people that are big into DevOps. They're big into cloud transitions. They understand the concepts. But the rest of the organization, we're talking the IT staff, the systems administrators, they'll say DevOps. Yeah, that's great. But they still are trying to implement the way that they did security in the past moving forward in the future. So there's just not enough people that actually get what the hell is going on because many people are like, well, we'll just stand up a VM and run our app in the VM. And that's the way that we've always done it. That's the way we're going to continue doing it in the future. Slap a DevOps sticker on it. We're good to go, right? And that's not the case. Mm. It, that's that's so true, right? It, it is a huge cultural shift, both for the IT teams, but the security teams to give up that control that IT and security teams have had. And now you're giving it to the developers to do it themselves. I mean, this is a Which, huge cultural shift. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the security, and, you know, of your application, oh, yeah. uh, Harry Sferdlove uh, from Edgewise uh, and myself and a bunch of other Security Weekly hosts last Thursday talked about this specific issue. And it's basically boiled down to trust, right? And take SaltStack's uh, software as an example. Their internals of their software aside, I'm deploying their software. If I've deployed it incorrectly, I've basically said, I trust the internet to connect to my service, right? And it really comes down to mapping out which uh, users, which applications, and maybe an extension, which, you know, netbox or IP addresses, largely that's not the case anymore. Who do I trust? And that has to surround mm -hmm. the application. It also has to be inside the application as well. My application should run. If someone breaks into my application, let's limit what they can do inside of my application as well. Uh, and there are, there's great technology, Edgewise as an example, uh, they're a sponsor, um, but great technology to basically accomplish what you know, you're talking about is maintaining the trust of your application and integrity of your application, whether it's on-premise, in the cloud, wherever it happens to go. 
this is also a great segue into open source and open source vulnerabilities. You know, Veracode did their report. Synopsys also did a report this week on open source vulnerabilities and usage. I mean, look, we're leveraging a ton of open source code in these commercial applications now. And both Veracode and Synopsys are seeing the uptick of embedding more open source components in, which leads us back to that conversation about transient vulnerabilities in all these open libraries. But as you know, less and less of an application is being written by an organization. It's it's reuse of mm -hmm. other components with very little custom code on top. Mm. Yep. Uh, what else we got in here this week? Oh, we got all kinds of Lots, fun stuff. Yeah, There's what? a bunch of acquisitions in here yet. Um, uh, let's I want a swim lane analyst hub. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of vendors. I'm not knocking swim lane, um, but that try and create a community, uh, a hub, if you will, right around their product. I, I have a lot of mixed success in doing that. And, and, but I think that's the Holy grail, right? If, if you're a vendor and you're writing a product, you want it to become the community product that people are contributing tons of plugins. And there's lots of examples of how this has worked successfully. Look at Maltego. Uh, you have the Maltego marketplace. You fire up Maltego and you can add in all kinds of different mix-ins from tons of different vendors to greatly extend that platform. Even going so far as looking at Rapid7 and with Metasploit, they have they basically bought a community with Metasploit years ago, and they've been great shepherds of that community. So you always want that marketplace. You want that to be like the community place. Oh, and another good example would be, um, uh, oh God, I just kind of had a complete brain fart. Um, Splunk. Um, the way Splunk actually works is there's tons of different plugins right. and things that you can do in a community. Splunk became that center of that community. So the best thing you can hope for as a vendor is if you have a core product and then you have lots of people contributing to that ecosystem, that makes your product that much better in the community, more ingrained. And uh, Snort would be an example of that as well. So, Yeah. And, you know, I think with Splunk, it took them a long time to really build that, right? I think vendors it, rush to it and look to it as like a quick thing. It takes time to build. It. I mean, unless you're like Rapid Seven, you just buy a community. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, but right I mean, now, HD. But I was going to say, HD had to build that trust and build that community, yes, exactly. right? Um, and then Rapid Seven embraced it. And you have to treat to that community it. with great respect moving forward to maintain it. Absolutely, you do. And I think honestly, Splunk has started losing that because you look at the huge adoption of Elastic. Mm -hmm. um, or elk stacks where now if anybody's in the sim space i'm seeing more and more people get excited about what's going on with elk than they are with splunk yeah yep yep again open source <laughs> <laughs> boy that that keeps coming back around sure does um, i do and look it, vmware uh announced on wednesday during its virtual conference they made an acquisition um of Octarine, I think is how it's uh, Octarine. It's a Kubernetes security company. This is interesting because of where they're going to integrate uh, this acquisition. Again, here we are back to applications, containers, the orchestrator, Kubernetes. Anybody getting a hint here on the theme? Um, this one's going to get integrated into two places, which I thought was interesting. One with the Carbon Black acquisition, because Carbon Black has been trying to figure out how to play in the container Kubernetes cloud space. They were doing some of their own research. This gives them some capabilities at the cloud workload side to add some capabilities into the Carbon Black, which is good. But they're also going to integrate some of this capabilities into uh, Tanzu, which is their um, 
Kubernetes runtime. Again, VMware has got to figure out how it's going to play long-term in the container space. Um, I think these are good moves for them because they're going to have to figure out how to embrace containerization as virtualization moves to containerization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was uh, one of the more interesting acquisitions this week. Yeah, the Venify one was pretty interesting too, right? It's on a similar path, right? It, but this is more about machine identities across all these disparate environments, including Kubernetes and cloud and APIs and all this other stuff. You know, I think we're going to continue to see an explosion of these different identities and, and the need to manage secrets across these different identities. I thought this acquisition was interesting. I don't know how it's going to come together yet, with Jetstack, but definitely see a need to manage the stuff better because we're just, with containerization and everything happening, just the number of identities that have to be managed are going to explode. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Nehemiah Security Risk Quantifier 4.0, um, Modeling Shared Business Risks. This is a company we did a briefing with a while oh, ago. This is, this is one... Oh, crap. Where is that? I, I did actually go through and look at this. And this, Go ahead, Paul. I, I, I've got so some. They say, yeah, provides enhanced ability to quantify, communicate, and manage risk across enterprises' various lines of business. Not quite sure how they... I don't remember how they yeah. do that. I So I, I, I hate this. Anytime anyone talks about automation of things that are purely subjective. If you look at risk, risk is very subjective to your mm -hmm. organization. I have yet to see anything that's like, oh, well, here's the overall risk to your organization. If you remember, Core tried that years ago, uh, trying to get paths to the main administrator as far as automation of pen testing. We see that with a ton of different products in the vulnerability management space, where they go through and they scan and then they come up with like a modified CVSS score to come up with the overall uh, risk and trying to quantify what it is you should be focusing on. And I think that a lot of these products absolutely fundamentally prey on people not understanding computer security yep. and not understanding the underpinnings of what's going on. So it's easier for them to say, well, I don't know where I should start. I got all these vulnerabilities. Where do I actually prioritize these? The right answer is get training, get to the point, hire people that know what they're doing. And the easy button is, well, I'm going to go buy a product and then the product's going to automatically tell me what I should focus on. And that almost always fails. Yeah, because I mean, there's two aspects uh, of risk that we talked about in, in an interview we did about the FAIR risk model, right? And that is impact mm -hmm. and probability. And like you Correct. said, John, it's very subjective. Those require, in most cases, a discussion, right? Right now mm -hmm. with, with actual human beings. Uh, I, I, I find it hard to believe that there is technology that can like truly put a number on, on those, right? Based on input. I, it's just, it requires a human decision I think in even just those two aspects of risk, right? It, uh, it yeah. does. So I actually have a patent on this called assessing risk in the business. Uh, and it was based off of a lot of the work I did in the early days of GRC in, my, in the control path startup that I had. And to your point, it, this is very difficult. And it depends on what kind of risk you're talking about. Yeah. Inherent risk or residual risk. My algorithm really talked about how to measure residual risk, which is based on control deficiencies and overall understanding of business impact across an organization. How could I me measure residual risk? And we had a very interesting formula that Sean and I came up with back in those days. But that was only that was a small subset of 
a much larger risk discussion. And, and over the years, I've learned that that approach, although not horrible, needed additional elements added to it if you were going to attempt to do a much more holistic risk calculation. Again, residual. Inherent risk is even harder, I think, because now you mm -hmm. have to identify in, in kind of, you know, I think it's this. And inherent risk is really, I think it's a lot tougher to do, where if I can do some measurements, I can pull in vulnerability and misconfiguration data, I could potentially measure an aspect of residual risk and get you pretty close, at least from a prioritization standpoint. But that means, Paul, to your point, probability mm -hmm. and impact have to be measured on a consistent basis or you'll never get there. Right. Well, and this gets into a much larger issue. And one of the reasons why I'm so vehemently against it is you have a lot of vendors now that are coming up that are talking about automation of red teams. And it's the same kind of theme. It's the same type of problem that's showing up again and again. Or people that do, well, we're going to automate APT28 against your organization and see how you do. What happens is we start to think that these concepts of risk are static. And I think that that's probably the biggest problem that you run into with anybody that's trying to calculate any type of risk formula is you believe mistakenly that you can basically boil it down within a formula and then that formula itself is static. Whereas in risk, with a dynamic risk calculation, you have users that are constantly trying to click on links from strangers. You have attackers that are constantly modifying their different techniques, trying to find additional vulnerabilities, trying to find additional misconfigurations. And that's really what's missing from a lot of risk calculation scores, mm -hmm. is belief that all of the inputs are static when in fact they're very dynamic and they're actually very much attracted to each other. And that's where it gets very hard to basically start to swallow the idea that somebody can say, well, we can automate a red team and emulate what an attacker is going to do. No, you can't. Yeah. The attacker is constantly going to change. Well, we can, audit, we can come up with a risk profile for your organization. No, you can't. Now, I think you can do it if you're going to do a vulnerability scan and say these are the missing patches and misconfigurations. I think you can do it within those areas because you can say what is actively being exploited today. But we did that years ago with the CVSS scores. So basically, people are trying to improve upon the CVSS scores, which in and of themselves are also subjective. But now we're trying to throw more subjective crap on top of it and then somehow magically say it's now objective and this is what you should be fixing in your organization. Yeah, and, and a lot of the models don't take in the dynamic aspects of what's going on. This is one of the limitations, I think, with FAIR that's, that creates some angst for me is how do you constantly feed the model with the latest and greatest data dynamically to adjust the risk scores and the overall impact to the business? It's very difficult. This is not easy mm. stuff, to your point, John. And, and I think the challenge with most risk models is they're a point in time too static where they need to be dynamic. Well, and it's interesting, yeah. you know, when I look at the FireEye announcement, um, they purchased Cloud Visory and have integrated that into a cloud security center uh, or some such thing. Uh, one of the features that I like, though, is they say they can block and quarantine attacks using cloud-native microsegmentation. That's fancy marketing speak, right? There's lots of different ways to accomplish that. The more important thing is, what are you monitoring, and how are you allowing me to make that decision? Back to our risk uh, profile, right? It certainly needs a, a risk calculation to decide, do I want to block it? 
do I want to quarantine it or do I just want to alert on it? It's a great feature and a lot of vendors are doing great work. Extra Hop gave us a great demo. Uh, they're a sponsor as well, right? About being able to quarantine uh, assets in the cloud uh, based on detections. Uh, so lots of great work going on, but what, what, what's feeding that, right? In Extra Hop's yeah. case, it's the network. The network doesn't doesn't lie, right? And you can get really accurate results, as we've shown, you know, in, in our product, yep. John, that we worked on, right? Is mm-hmm. a high degree of confidence that this is bad traffic, right? In yep. the FireEye announcement, how, what what are you monitoring and this how? Is- Right. This is this is actually beautiful. I think this is so. This goes back to Paul. You remember years ago we were doing work with uh, Cloud Passage a mm-hmm. uh, long, long, long time ago. With Chris, with Chris Brenton was still there. Right. And the idea that you can create uh, like a cloud, what Cloud Passage does, which is very similar to Cloudvisory, where you can create a unified look for managing the firewall rules, managing mm-hmm. the compliance rules, managing the alerts from multiple different implemented cloud instances is beautiful because you're making that job easier for the systems administrators. I don't have to go through do NetSH ADV firewall rules on yeah. Windows systems. I don't have to go do IP tables rules on Linux computer systems. You can basically see one standardized dashboard for managing all of your assets. And that, I think that that was really cool with Cloud Passage, but that was for full VMs. As soon as you started going to apps being deployed yep. in the cloud, I think that that changed that game dramatically. Because you lose the IP address, basically. I mean, a lot of stuff in the cloud doesn't have an I, a, a static IP address, certainly. Every time I spin up a Lambda, it gets a new one. <laughs> API gateways, like IP address is gone. Like, it's an asset. It's, it's either your app or it's the cloud provider's app, right? How do I I protect? like to think of it as an analogy of a car, right? If you have a full virtual machine, you have a full car. And the way a lot of applications are deployed in the in the cloud now is yep. like, here, take this engine and plug it into AWS. And you've lost <laughs> all of the carness around it. Mm-hmm. And the, that's all handled by Amazon now. Um, so I, I think it's cool that we're looking at ways that we can try to unify this management. And I think that one of the things that Matt's presentation a number of months ago, talking about what a complete picture looked like that was difficult is there was no one vendor, Matt, that was actually unifying it all. You had to go mm-hmm. through and tie mm-hmm. together multiple different vendors and plug them in, and you were still looking at multiple dashboards. And that underlies the problem with the migration to the cloud as it exists today. Yeah. So many services, so many different components that have to be integrated together. It's very difficult. There's a couple that are doing good chunks of it, but still, the mm-hmm. full visibility of that stack is very, very difficult. Uh, any other articles you want to close this segment out with? I- just, just obviously, for those who haven't seen the news yet, oh, yeah. RSA conference got bumped from February to May. It's now May seventeenth, um, that the week of May seventeenth, and that's pretty big news. I mean, obviously, we we heard the news a couple weeks ago with the cancellation of the physical conferences, both at Black Hat and DEF CON. Now we have our largest security event being pushed out three full months. Uh, in 2021. So just for those people out there that are, were kind of playing in their 2021 stuff, um, RSA conference is now May. I I think largely this is a really good thing for a lot of reasons. Uh, one being the earlier in the year RSA was pushed up, the more tunnel vision you can fall into in a marketing program. And you end up playing catch up like the whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. So in December, you know, November, you're trying to plan all of next year, but you've got, like Matt said, the largest conference in the beginning of the year. So your planning for the next year is all focused on RSA, right? Because there's a ton of planning if you're going to pr- be at that event in any capacity, right? 
uh, and, and then everything in the beginning of the year is really just like oh, we got to finish getting ready for RSA, and then they come out of it and go, all right, what what else were we going to do for the rest of the year <laughs> in terms of in terms of marketing? Well, uh, it, you know, I that's sometimes we would step in and go, you know, marketing is not a calendar year; like you, it's a constant cycle you have to be mm-hmm. thinking about, right? Uh, and that's where I think you know we try and help uh, our sponsors understand that complete cycle. Uh, and how easy it is to fall into that tunnel vision of the largest conference. Yeah. Well, and I hate it for one simple, very selfish reason. Uh, I think that they put it right on top of when Wild West Hacking Fest is in San Diego. Yeah. So uh, that's selfish on my part. <laughs> is that in 2021? You had scheduled May already? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we're looking yeah. at the end of May. That's hard. I'm sure that wasn't on purpose. Up? I mean, that's hard, no, no. though, to know, <laughs> to know when and then, yeah, it's hard. Well, everything's shifting. It's going to continue shifting, and it's okay. Yep. We'll get through it on the other side. Agreed. Yep. Awesome. Well, that concludes the Enterprise Security News for this week. Stay tuned. Dan from PlexTrack coming up next. Detecting and responding to threats in the cloud is harder than doing it on-prem. Even when you do have the visibility you need, legacy security workflows weren't designed for the speed and complexity of cloud environments. Cloud-native security solutions from ExtraHop are purpose-built to spot threats across the hybrid attack surface, provide detailed investigation steps, and help you automate response. Request your 30-day free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Layer 8 is going virtual. The conference will be held on Saturday, June 6th. Security Weekly listeners save $20 off their ticket by visiting Layer8Conference.com using the promo code SECURITYWEEKLY before selecting your ticket type. Please consider supporting Layer 8 or one of their partner organizations when purchasing the ticket. You can make a donation to uh, select charitable organizations. Uh, Some of the Security Weekly team will be in our own channel on the Layer 8 Discord server answering questions and possibly doing some contests and giveaways. Dan DeKloss is the founder and CEO of PlexTrack. He has 15 years of experience in cybersecurity. Uh, Dan started his career in the Department of Defense, moved on to consulting, where he worked for various companies, including serving as a principal consultant for Veracode on the pen testing team. Uh, Today, he makes software to make everyone's lives easier with respects to penetration testing assessments and managing the results. You can find more at securityweekly.com forward slash PlexTrack. If I can say that right, forward slash PlexTrack. So, Dan, (laughs) welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yes. <clears throat> nice to have you on today, Dan. Um, and we were talking about uh, risk in the in the previous segment, of course, which I, I know is a, a topic near and dear to your heart. Uh, and for this segment, uh, it really got me thinking about how enterprises consolidate all of these results, right? And I was thinking about, well, you may have an external red team, you may have an internal red team, You've got some vulnerability scans that are running. You've got various tools in use by all these teams that could be collecting vulnerability uh, information, right? Then you've got um, self-assessment questionnaires, right? Where they're more like an audit, but that's also providing input to the assessment process, right? Um, And and your software today helps people essentially with this problem and puts it all in one place so we can manage it uh, all together, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, when you think about the complexity that a security program actually has, even for smaller organizations, you still have a lot of things to keep track of, right? And you should, you know, and part of your diligence and wanting to make sure that you're assessing your security posture accurately, 
you need to have a better view of like everything that actually is in the context of your organization. And so you have lots of different point solutions, different tools and, and platforms or uh, uh, avenues like, you know, risk assessments and things like that, that are providing input, right. And providing uh, results, but they're kind of dis disparate and fractured. And so, you know, we really consolidate all that to give you a better picture of what you should try to prioritize. And you're the one that decides what the priorities are based on <clears throat> your context within your organization. So I loved that, that previous discussion around, you know, risk scores and things like that. Uh, that, that truly, you know, it, it takes the human human element to a degree to be able to say like, well, this this tool is saying this is a really high risk, um, but it's actually in an air gapped network. So we're not going to uh, rate, it, rate it as high, but we're going to prioritize these other issues. So, so PlexTrack, we really bring all those results together to try and uh, give the uh, finger, you know, get the results at your fingertips to make those decisions and be able to show progress over time. Uh, I think one thing that people forget about is is how value productivity actually is, yeah. um, and and eliminating some of those wastes and those workflows is really important. Matt, yeah, it, you know, Dan, having built one of the early governance risk management and compliance solutions in the market, competed with Archer for a number of years, and and spent uh, about two and a half years at RSA on the Archer team. You know, there were platforms out there to do pieces of this, but. What I noticed is, you know, it's great from a self-assessment perspective and collecting self-assessment data and building some workflows around it. Where a lot of those platforms fell down is just the number of other feeds that it needs to take and the number of mm. data elements you really need to bring together, like vulnerability scan results or penetration testing results or other activities, right? And what it sounds like you've built, which I think is interesting, is a very focused kind of consolidation workflow tool really to help the red teamers, the blue teamers, right? Your purple teaming concept and bring all that data together and, and make it actionable, uh, which is different than what the GRCs really set out to do, but also had some limitations in trying to pull this stuff together. Yeah, and I think that's a good point and, and why we, you know, we kind of, we don't really consider ourselves a GRC proper tool, right? I mean, we're, we're definitely focused on the collaboration pieces of the remediation lifecycle, right? And, and making it easy for red teamers to be more productive in finding the issues. And we also abstract the red team uh, to be anybody doing anything proactive, right? Any kind of proactive assessment we consider part of the red team. Um, and, and so even if it is like a self-assessment questionnaire or a, a government, a GRC type assessment against a framework, those are all things that you can do and bring in to PlexTrack. And then you have that consolidation of all those results to be able to then say, okay, we need to fix these first. And the nice thing about PlexTrack is you can tag data with anything. So you actually have analytics based on things like compliance, like you can say, how, how are we looking at, you know, PCI 3.1 or something like that. Uh, so you can have those analytics and start to show your progress against those specific even controls, but also uh, the, the general risks that are coming into the environment. So it, it acts like a living, breathing risk register. Yeah. And Dan, I have a great use case for exactly what you were just talking about. Um, I was helping someone out with their PCI assessment, right? They had basically gotten back a vulnerability scan uh, from their uh, scanning vendor, right? Their ASV. And so that in and of itself is data that you would import into into this tool, right? And then there was the questionnaire piece where I you know, went back to my friend and started asking him questions, right? About the network, about what type of compliance are you, uh, do you have to do? What type of questionnaires have you filled out for PCI? How's your network structured? That kind of stuff, right? 
Then there was an actual physical like network assessment where I basically did a quick scan. Like you get an NMAP results, right? Those should be imported as well because that's pertinent to the story. And then I did like a mini web application assessment of one of the things that was in uh, in question. So I had actual pen test results from a tool like Burp, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, what, and I had like, you know, all these files everywhere and notes and stuff like that. And then I had to try and communicate that to... You know, one of our other hosts, like Jeff, obviously, who was helping me on the PCI aspect. And then I had to communicate that back to uh, my friend who I was helping. And then there's a reporting back to, you know, his ASV. Um, and so having a tool to manage, I mean, just in that small little, and this is a small retailer, right, that we're right. trying to help out because retail obviously is struggling now. So whatever we can do to help them. Um, but managing all that data was, was problematic. I had not considered that use case until you uh, had just started talking earlier. <laughs> Yeah, and it, and, it, and it feels chaotic, right? Just yeah. hearing you talk about it, it's mm -hmm. like, man, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of there, mm -hmm. right? You know, and that's and that's what I lived. You know, I mean, I you know, I, I built this as a, I mean, I started building this as a, as a as a means to try and um, you know facilitate you know more productivity in the things that really mattered, getting the right security work done, producing the right results, and trying to waste as much time. I mean, eliminate as much wasted time mm -hmm. on just you know managing all the different aspects of where these things are coming from and what you know who should I be talking to and, and having a central point for collaboration and, and remediation. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, Dan, we talk about workflow, collaboration. Um, we, you and I, I think have this special bond, right? We're in two different projects uh, that we work on. We're trying to eliminate spreadsheets, right? Matt knows this, <laughs> yeah. right? In our own production mm -hmm. process, right? We started 15 years ago. I mean, the way you track things, who's coming on the show, what show are we doing? Which PCI audit am I working with? Which other results do I have? is being tracked in a spreadsheet. And you could track it in a spreadsheet. And what I think Dan and I both realize, right, is there's some really powerful features in a spreadsheet. And it's not always easy to replicate that in a product, first of all, is the first point, right? Would you agree? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason Excel still exists. Yeah. Right? It's the reason we use it, right? <laughs> um, the, the other point, though, is that I think, you know, both of us, myself working on our production software and you working on PlexTrack is that managing that workflow in software that's specific to that uh, is supporting that process is the ability to do a number of things, right? Track the state of something, send alerts or, or triggers when a certain event happens, um, being able to capture that data in a central place and not you know, have a spreadsheet that's emailed or shared through Google Drive and then you can't find it because once it goes into Google Drive, it's, it, you can't find it anyway, <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, yeah, uh, so there's, <laughs> there's a lot of problems that you solve with having a customized software solution for this process. I think that the accountability, uh, tracking the state is, is huge and it's something that's lost when we're all emailing around a spreadsheet, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the fact that, um, you know, we, we, we lived in a paradigm and still some, somewhat do in that, you know, you get an assessment done in any kind of capacity, whether it's an external audit, an internal audit, um, a penetration test, and, and it, it tends to be a result in, in, a, in a document, like either mm -hmm. it's a spreadsheet or a PDF or a Word doc. And, and then, you know, I still got to copy that somewhere and I still got to be able to keep track of it. And then I start to lose some of that over time, right? Like, well, what were the results last year? You know, mm -hmm. how, did, how, do, how are we shaping up, you know, the last three years? Where are we trending, right? And so you, you, if you're not, you know, if you don't have a central spreadsheet to do that, you know, you're, you're, losing, that, you're, you're losing that context over time. And yeah. so that was, yeah. that's really one of the problems that we set out to solve. It's interesting. It's almost like centralized project management, cu customized project management software in both our cases, right? Because there is an aspect of you do have a ticketing system, 
but you can't manage that whole process in the ticketing system. That's just for small tasks that, that need to be tracked, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we even integrate with other ticketing systems like ServiceNow and Jira so that, you know, you don't have to disrupt some of the current workflows. And, and, and yet, if you don't have that workflow, you can do it straight within within PlexTrack. But, mm-hmm. uh, but being able to see like, hey, when was the last time somebody actually even addressed this? You know, right. I mean, this, this pen test finding, you know, kind of back to the point about how everything's dynamic, right? A pen test finding that's a low today could be a critical tomorrow, Absolutely. depending on what happens this, tonight, mm-hmm. right? And so being able to come back and say like, okay, do we need to, do we need to raise the priority, priority on this and getting it fixed? Do we need to adjust this, the criticality? What was the last time somebody actually made a comment on, hey, we're fixing this or no, we're, we're going to wait you know, because we don't consider it to be a high risk yet. Um, you know, if you, if you, you, you need, you need PlexTrack or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. to be able to, right. to really provide that context over time. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. That exception tracking is, is another piece. I mean, your biggest competitor at the end of the day is Excel spreadsheets and emails, which mm-hmm. is the way, you know, it, that's why I built control path back in the days because I had to manage 70,000 vendor risk assessments yep. and all their open issues through Excel spreadsheet and email, and then you got to, well, that's an exception. So that expires on this date. So then you got to create a reminder in your calendar to go check. I I mean, it's just having software do that makes it so much easier. Yeah, yeah. And then being able to centralize, you know, results from lots of different of the, like, you know, like you might have a workflow for each different type of assessment. And for larger enterprises, these are entirely different teams, right? You got your incident response team, your threat intelligence team, the GRC team, AppSec team, all of the, you know, pen test, everybody. And so having a way to collaborate across all of those folks and say like, hey, some people may have found the same thing. And they may even say like, because we both found it, it's even higher risk. And so uh, being able to collaborate effectively uh, just makes you more productive, makes you get uh, more work done and, and faster and helps you focus on the right things from a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And, and speaking of focusing on the right things, what, what I liked was uh, the use case where I'm going to do a self-assessment questionnaire, right? Maybe I'm on an internal red team. I've got six different divisions that I need to pen test. How do I know where to start, right? I think a great strategy, I wish I had done this uh, when I was doing it for the university, right? Send out a self-assessment questionnaire to all the departments and let them fill that out. Like, you know, do you have a firewall? Do you have antivirus? I mean, it's obviously going to look much different today. Um, and then get those results back in, put those inside of, the, you know, your tracking tool, in this case, PlexTrack, and then help set the priority for those tests, right? Look at the data, be able to visualize it and say, I think we need to start here, Right. Or maybe there's, you know, we asked them if they were going to implement some security project, right? And they say, yeah, we're going to do that and we'll be done in two months. Okay, well, put, put that on hold for two months. Let them do their thing first, right? Then we'll go in and do the assessment. They know about some of these issues. Um, so I thought that usage of it and then be able to do vulnerability scanning and pen test results in with the self-assessment questionnaire, I thought was a really cool feature and approach to the problem. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, the, the more data you have at your fingertips, the the more you can set that priority, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we noticed you got a project that's that's going to be taken three months to, to patch this code, right? Um, but, and that sounds great, but then all of a sudden the pen test results come in and it's highly exploitable. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, you got to escalate that. I mean, we got to figure out how we're going to make this get fixed faster, right? right. So having, having a, a way to see the results across different assessments is, is, is vital, right? And, and a way that we can help move the needle uh, to quicker remediation and better security posture overall. Hey, Dan, how, how do you deal with some of the normalization issues that obviously 
need to be done when you're bringing in multiple data sources, right? I have question data, right? I have vulnerability data, I have pen test results, maybe some configuration stuff. How, how do you normalize all that in a consistent way so I treat everything in a similar fashion? Yeah, we, we, we bring everything into what we would call a report level, right? So, so a pen test ends up being a report. Uh, you know, vulnerability scans can be their own individual reports. Uh, and then we track things at an asset level uh, for like, you know, more of the vuln management folks. So if you have like the same finding that was identified in multiple reports, it shows up as one finding for that asset uh, and just indicates that, hey, this, this was identified in two, two reports. So we, we call that an instance count. Uh, so we try to bring it into a consistent view regardless of where it came from, right? And, and so our report is kind of that, you know, consistent view of, of here, here's a, here's a list of prioritized items that you need to address. Uh, and then, and then from there you can, you know, collaborate, you can fix the issues, you can make comments, you can change the, the score of the risk, uh, you know, or the severity of the finding, um, even add and remove assets as, 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 uh, as necessary. But, um, that's kind of how we how we bring it into kind of a, a consistent normalized view, and then we have an analytics module that you know then you can provide uh, you know enhanced trending data and things like that, and you know what are the top risks across these different business units or you know clients depending on you know your use case. Got it. Yeah, because I mean the ability to pivot from the finding to the asset, right? Sometimes it's this finding is on this number of assets. But you can also say this asset has this number yeah. of findings, right? So you can prioritize yeah, that's a good really either way. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and actually, that's, it. <laughs> that's actually kind of what we do. Um, so like the report itself is a vulnerability that may have multiple assets that are, effect, that are affected by it. Um, but then you can also drill into the asset itself and see, okay, for this asset, we have this many vulnerabilities. So we kind of we kind of present the data in two different ways, depending on how how folks are actually re resolving the issues. Uh, and that's an important it's important to clarify because uh, you know do you consider a vulnerability? You know, do you consider this one finding when you've got 100 assets listed there? Um, well, maybe not. So uh, so you want to be able to see with this specific asset how many findings are associated with it. So. Uh, that you know, we kind of we kind of do both, right? Yeah. Plus, the fix could be, you know, if I apply this patch, I resolve these hundred findings. You know, this one finding across a hundred machines, for example, right? And now, exactly. you, now, now you know that bang for the buck of of applying that patch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and you might have, you know, one nice thing about PlexTrack is you can assign issues to a person, right. Or to a, to somebody to actually, Hey, you're, you're responsible for fixing this. Not only can you assign it at the finding level, you can assign it at the asset level too. So, Hey, you may have like an overall group responsible for fixing this issue, but um, you know, these, these five assets that are affected by it really belong to John. Right. And the other, the other 20 belong to Paul. Right. So. And, and what I like, too, is that you can validate or invalidate the vulnerability data, right? Something could report that something is vulnerable and you've got a pen test team. I don't need to go do a full pen test. Like, can I, let me just go validate some of these results and then reprioritize and update my results, right? I may upload some screenshots or other such evidence. It's like, yeah, we've got mitigating controls for this, or this exploit really isn't real. We don't really have that library as a false positive, or you know, the million different scenarios that we have. You can validate those and put it in one place, uh, so that everyone's yeah. literally working off the same page, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's really where you find the productivity enhancements, right? Is being able to say like, 
you know, you could, you could be having a red teamer and a blue teamer collaborating in real time saying, we just got this report in and can you validate it? Or, or, you know, we fixed right. this, can you validate yep. it? They can fix it. They can provide their evidence right there and then they can close it out. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so just that, that amount of time, would, if you're trying to do that via email or some other ticking system could, could take some time. Right. So um, the more productive you are, uh, the faster those things get fixed, the faster you move on to the next one. Right. Yep. And, you know, there's two uh, technologies and categories now uh, in security that I think is interesting to tie into your uh, vulnerability management program, right? We've got attack surface management, which is finding not just vulnerabilities, but also somewhat, I think, threats, right, that may be posed to your organization that have to be identified, you know, classified, tracked, a priority set to them. Uh, you know, they could tell you things like, uh, by the way, someone's cloned your website and they're putting it somewhere else and they're using it for phishing attacks, right? That's not something that even a pen test may find if they're looking for, like if you scoped it out for that, right? Um, but it's not something a vulnerability scanning tool is going to find unless you've got some type of attack surface management, right? So I like using that technology to bring that into the fold. And then on the internal side, you've got attack simulation, which I think is awesome for constantly iterating in your environment and finding problems. If you can get those two things running and start feeding those results into, you know, whatever central system you're using for managing that, um, that can help add context, right? It can either validate or invalidate existing findings and or provide new ones as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, the fact that, you know, that, that you can treat PlexTrack as kind of a centralized risk register, you know, that's kind of living and breathing, you can, you have the flexibility to have both of those types of things as, as risks. And then you can also start to say, Hey, this is correlated to that. We're going to increase the risk. Uh, you know, the, the ability to have the, the global perspective of like your external exposure, you know, combined with, uh, anything that's been truly exploited on the inside or those you know, breach simulations truly starts to give you a better view of like, okay, here's, here are the areas within, you know, we, we like to te- tie things back to the attack life cycle. Um, you know, here, here are the areas and tactics within this life cycle that, you know, we really are weak on versus strong. And so mm-hmm. we maybe should put, put some more resources and investment into, into that uh, tactic uh, to see how can we improve there. Um, it's interesting. Uh, just today, we actually announced that we're, we've, we've have a new integration with Scythe. Um, so that's, that's exciting. We just posted that on, uh, earlier, uh, on social media earlier today, and we're going to be nice. doing a webinar coming up here in a couple of weeks, just about that integration and how you deal with, with the, the breach and attack simulation data, you know, combined with the other risk data within the organization and how that really helps to, uh, set the priorities. Mm-hmm. Well, as we were talking about in the last segment, Dan, right, it's that dynamic nature. Things are constantly changing in the environment. And if I'm not bringing in that real-time data and those dynamic elements, I'm not going to have a really good understanding of my risk posture because otherwise it's too static or, or too infrequent. Yeah, and when you have a you know when you have a single team looking at a single set of data, uh, that's that's harder for like the CISO or the director to really say like well, what's you know what you know I, I see the GRC team they've done their gap analysis on our PCI controls which is great work, but how does that compare to the pen test that I just had and even like the purple team engagement that's going on right now? How do how do we bring those together and really say like okay, this this gap showed up in the, in the GRC assessment, but now we've got an it, an exploitable condition in, in our purple team and pen test. So, so that, that helps provide you know, the decision makers with the ability to say, nope, we're going to escalate this. We're going to invest here. 
Yeah, like, it's uh, it's somewhat similar to uh, some of my fears with DevOps, right? Is that as we get better at automated checking, even uh, human uh, checking without automation in our software life cycle, development life cycle, right? If we do that really well, what happens is the developers have a lot more tickets to go through and they have no idea what the priority should be, right? right. <laughs> Which yeah. is why I like to have something else in there that's helping me normalize that, that vulnerability assessment data and prioritize it so that when I do create a ticket, it's like you said, Dan, it's based on the PCI assessment, it's based on the pen test, the purple team, and the vulnerability scanning results. And it's normalizing that together. So rather than getting four tickets, right, maybe I get one to be like, hey, you need to update this library and that wipes that stuff out. That's always been a hard thing to accomplish in vulnerability management, as Matt and I know, mm -hmm. you know, worked in that space for quite some time. Yeah, most definitely. And I think we got a question on. Are, are, do we answer questions from? Oh Discord yeah, we can here? answer okay. questions from Discord. Absolutely, yeah, I, I, it's hard <laughs> for me to. It's hard for me to pay attention to Slack, Squirrel Discord, <laughs> and my own notes. Right. I'm sorry. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, if there's a question, uh, do you want to do you want to read it? Yeah, it was about. Um, oh, yeah, DJs are next. How to prevent interview. security teams from getting defensive when a simulation attack is run? Everybody agrees on the value, but in reality, you know, it's true. What does that mean? Uh, well, that's the that's the uh, the dilemma of every pen tester too, right? I mean, at the end of the day, at least my experience being a web app pen tester, you know, when you find some really exploitable conditions, you're you're effectively you know tactfully calling somebody's baby ugly, right? And so, <laughs> how do you develop those tact, you know, those softer skills to be able to, uh, um, you know, to to actually say like, hey, here's a problem, right? But we're we're here to actually help you solve the problem. Um, and so, when I was building out a blue team. Uh, I definitely, you know, tried to encourage our team to really be the partners in the organization that we're actually going to improve the security risk. Uh, Dan, your video froze. I don't know. Sometimes if you just uh, disable it and re-enable it, it comes back. It's weird. It's frozen, though. Is that better? Let's see if we can get Dan back. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. we can hear you. I okay. just can't see you anymore for some reason. Now. <laughs> That's weird. Very strange. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah, it, it, you know, convincing someone that there is a vulnerability is a, a super difficult thing. I think that goes for attack simulation running against Windows systems, right? Where the team is like, well, well, no, I don't have any vulnerabilities in my system, and they're instantly defensive. Dan, I think your point of uh, making it a goal to always try and help them, right? Mm -hmm. that we're not here just to point out problems. Like, we're here to help you, right? Pointing out this problem is helping helping you, um, in, in, if you present it as help, uh, I think you get much better results. Now, if we, in your example, Dan, we pivot to a web application vulnerability, uh, assessment or pen test that gets like really difficult, really fast. In fact, I've talked to people that I would consider way more talented than I in discovering web application vulnerabilities. And I'm like, Help, help me understand XML external entities and like first let's understand it and how it presents itself in applications. Then you take the challenge that DJ pointed out of how do you go explain that to your application developers, right? And, you know, sometimes the answer, especially with this attack is, I, yeah, like I don't truly understand it either. And then I don't feel as bad, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and my point with this style attack that is very difficult to explain to different teams is in um, uh, the XML external entities, it seems to me that the 
exploit and vulnerability is presented and exploited different in every single application. Like there's no example that I can point to that's like, yeah, this is going to be kind of similar to like this example. Like there's no, there's no example. Like it's just hard in every case. Take that and then go to your web app uh, people and like it's a full-blown investigation that is going to require some tracking, right? Uh, and I've tried to track down some of these and like essentially you got to get to the JavaScript code and go, okay, like how much of a reality is this? Uh, and then I think working with the teams is great because as an external assessment or, or pen tester, I'm seeing the JavaScript, but it's been obfuscated. There's another term that they take the variable names that are descriptive and they make them yeah. A, B, C, D, E, F. There's another term for mm -hmm. that that I can't think of. Uh, like minified? Minified, yes. Thank mm -hmm. you. Uh, and so I'm reading the minified JavaScript, and I, like, I want to gouge my eyes out because it's just so... <laughs> I mean, if you've ever tried to read code where everything's been... You know, all the variable names have been replaced with uh, just single letters from the English alphabet. Oh, God. Uh, so working with a developer, I think, is uh, a much better approach. And once you do that, you'll start to earn their trust, right? Like, look, I think I found a vulnerability. Let's work on this together, um, I think, is a great way to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm um, still trying to get my video back on. Sorry, I don't know what's going on here. But I agree. I mean, I think one of the soft skills that, that security professionals in general um, may not be aware that they really need to have is, is the ability to communicate risk effectively and be able to come alongside people that don't mm. know what they're talking about, like that don't know what you're talking about and being able to say like, here's, here's really, really what the impact is going to be if, if we don't fix this. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's come together and figure out what we need to do to, to make everyone you know safer. Uh, and yeah, it's, and, it's understanding yeah. that context and that impact together. Uh, to have a very clear communication on this is why this is important, not just because I'm security and I say so. Right. It, yeah, exactly. And and just go fix it, right? That's the, <laughs> that's not the right answer. <laughs> yeah, exa right. yeah and, and, exactly. Because I mean, yeah. in some cases, like with web app phones, it may not be even a vulnerability. It may not even be a huge deal. The difficulty level for exploiting it, right? That likelihood and probability uh, aspect of risk, right, just might not be there. And it may require collaboration, which I think collaborating with the various teams, whether developers or running Windows systems or Linux or the cloud, uh, is important uh, to maintain in security today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And even even on the pen test side, you know, I guess one nice thing that 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 we've we've gotten feedback from in PlexTrack is that you know you can actually identify the recommendations. One thing that we always struggled with was like trying to help people reproduce the issue, right? Yeah. Is is always a challenge. And so being able to show things like a video, like here's how we actually exploited it, yes. makes so much more different. It makes such a big difference in in somebody saying, okay, oh, I get it now. I see what you actually did because the screenshots are great, but if if you got from A to B, and, you know, there might be a little little point in there that got missed in a screenshot that that becomes a challenge. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Right. Yeah, I like the being able to do a video. Uh, oftentimes the you know these findings that we have you need a video to explain it right the picture speaks a thousand words you know a video does much better uh, right. and that provides the tester with the opportunity to give a little background as well which is which is harder when you're trying to describe that even with screenshots and or uh, you know just text uh, it, that's I think why sometimes it often just feels like yep you got this vulnerability like you got cross-site scripting like go fix it right but uh, look at cross-site scripting today. 
uh, and the enhancements that have been made in the DOM and the various ways to interact with it, like there's a million different ways this could crop up. Uh, and all with us slightly, I mean, the webcast uh, that we did last, I think it was last week, right? Where I talked about these classifications of vulnerabilities in web apps have different meaning depending on how they're used inside your application. File upload as an example, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I, I, having that platform uh, to provide better both findings, present your findings, and remediation uh, is a feature you've really worked hard on in PlexTrack, Dan, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that, that being able to, to present your work and, and actually be able to show the effort that went into it is, is always been a challenge. And so that yeah. was, that's definitely one of the first problems we set out to solve is like, how can we make this a more uh, robust experience, not just to be able to show how much effort went into it, but make it easier for the people receiving these results to be able to fix them faster, right? And and uh, collaborate across you know all the different teams, in, including the person that found it, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes you are going to go back to that person and say, "How did we? How did we fix? Or, you know, I don't even know how to get started here." And you can you can still collaborate, and then you even have a, a record of that collaboration you know, from last year. So like next right, year, right. what happens, right? Okay, what did we do last year? Here's what we did last year. So uh, so it's nice to have a central po- uh, repository of all that historical data. Yeah, you could also use it as a knowledge base to help train others yes. on, hey, these yeah. are the different steps we took to resolve this particular use case. So it, it can also become a good training tool as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. For both sides, for the pen tester and the, mm-hmm. the enterprise, right? Yep, exactly. Awesome. Uh, Dan, anything else you would like to share with our audience? I know you said you had a webcast coming up to talk about your integration with uh, Scythe in attack simulation, which I think is awesome. Yeah, no. So, I mean, yeah, we're definitely excited about integrating with Scythe um, and, uh, you know, kind of bringing in, in those more advanced tool sets uh, and, and those findings. You know, we've we've really been working hard also on improving our analytics uh, capabilities. So those are some exciting features. We're, we're continuing to do webinars every month in addition to uh, the webinar with Scythe. We'll have another one coming up next week where we just kind of run through uh, all the feature updates and then provide additional use cases for the platform. But, uh, uh, you know, really excited about, uh, you know, all, all the things coming, you know, within PlexTrack as, as well as all the things that we've put in recently, including enhanced analytics. We have the capability to show uh, published versus draft findings. So as people are working on them, mm-hmm. uh, they may not want to have those published just yet. So it, it becomes you know visible only when they say so. Um, and then we've we've made a lot of enhancements to the uh, to the uh, assessments module where um, you know we've we've built in some more based uh, baseline assessments like with CMMC that's coming out here. Uh, so, well, actually, I, I think well it's June one I think is when it's actually live, right? So, but we have that ass- baseline assessment in there now for people to be able to take. And um, so yeah, so just a, a lot of exciting stuff you know in in PlexTrack today and. Um, you know, uh, have been getting good feedback, which I think is the most important uh, to me about the productivity increase uh, for for the teams and, and people that are using it. Sweet. Uh, folks that want to learn more can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Plex track. Dan, thank you very much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And with that, we'll take a short break. Come back with our next interview segment, DJ from ArmorBlock. Stay tuned. 
Today, every business is a digital business. Most of us are migrating workloads to the cloud, adopting DevOps tools, rolling out RPA software, and supporting a remote workforce. While opportunity is great, so is the risk of advanced cyber attacks. Many high-profile breaches start with a compromise of privileged credentials. CyberArk is the number one leader in privileged access management. Talk to CyberArk today to secure privileged access for humans and machines across hybrid and cloud environments and on endpoints. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash CyberArk and stay one step ahead of the attackers. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome back everyone to Enterprise Security Weekly. Learn how hidden vulnerabilities lead to application compromise in our next webcast with Sneak. You can register for our upcoming webcast and virtual trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash webcast or go to forward slash on demand for previously recorded webcasts. DJ Sampath is the co-founder and CEO at Armorblocks. Uh, prior to that, he was VP of Engineering and a founding member of the team at StackRocks. Um, and welcome to the show today, DJ. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you on the show um, and talk about what we term as business email compromise uh, and expanding that to other communications mechanisms. I can't tell you how excited I am to, to talk about this. It's something that I mention all the time and I feel like attackers, defenders, solutions providers are all kind of like, yeah, maybe someday, right? But that, that day is, is very soon, uh, at least for, for your company and, and technology, correct? Absolutely. Uh, you're spot on, you know, with, with the whole, you know, workforce moving to working from home, mm. you know, with the shelter in place and, and working remotely, this has become, you know, top of mind for a, for a lot of the security teams, you know, as they think about, hey, what does my attack surface look like as my, my workforce moves over and, and starts working from home? You know, the, the very first thought was, okay, I, I need to get them laptops, you know, work laptops and, and get the VPN set up. But once they get past that, the that, you know, the next thing becomes, hey, how are they communicating back and forth and what channels are they communicating on? How do I provide appropriate controls to, to make sure that the, the team members are sharing the right things when they're talking about, uh, you know, talking with outside contractors or if they're engaging with, um, you know, um, a content that's coming from outside in, how are they engaging with that? And so um, classically, this has been, you know, always thought about as an, as an email problem. And it still is, don't get me wrong, you know, email's not, uh, not going anywhere. Um, but, but we're starting to see that, that expansion happen, you know, from, from beyond emails to, to other forms of communication. And, um, and to your earlier point, um, the time is now because, um, you know, if you take a look at my Slack um, inside of the company, we've got so many vendors and contractors and mm -hmm. support personnel on Slack on shared channels, right? And, um, and and so it's entirely possible, you know, that that you know sometimes when a link is being shared, you know, not everybody is checking. Not every single vendor, you know, if we're working with a PR firm, for instance, uh, they're not aware if a link is in fact malicious or not. And um, and then when they share that, 
it's actually a broadcast medium. Sometimes the, the impact of that is, is uh, you know, is wider than that of email mm -hmm. because um, a lot of people are on that channel and, uh, and, the, and the rate at which they engage with the content is, is so, you know, dynamically different. You know, they, they click on that link very quickly right. and then bam, you know, a lot more people are compromised. And so, um, so we're, we're seeing this, you know, pattern happen, you know, rather with an alarming amount of cadence. And, uh, and so we, uh, at Armablox, we've decided that, hey, let's, let's understand, let's, let's start opening up our aperture because we've built a platform that can understand this. And so we're, we're opening up the aperture to other channels like Slack, Teams, Box, Dropbox, you know, pretty much uh, the whole gamut of messaging and, and document sharing platforms as well. Yeah, it's interesting as we think about messaging and collaboration tools. I mean, Zoom bombing can almost be thought of as video spam at this right at this point, right? Rather than invading your inbox, I'm going to invade wherever you're hanging out, whether that's Slack or Zoom or Teams or whatever it is, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and and to think that you know, um, uh, there, there's an implicit assumption that. When you are on a, on a conference call, you have, uh, you know, uh, different sort of privacy, you know, things, you know, it's like your, your, your privacy expectations are very different. And, um, and, and so, so it's really, uh, it's really challenging when, when somebody pops in, it's the same, it's the exact same thing as somebody, uh, you know, sending you spam or somebody sending you a phishing link and, and, and interrupting your communication workflows. But it's more obvious when it is a, when it's a zoom bombing that happens. And, uh, and, and, and with the DMs as well, right? When you chat on a, on a Zoom chat, mm. you're, you're basically making an assumption that, hey, um, I have an expectation of privacy. To know that once a call is done, all of those DMs are available for download. Now, right. that's, a, that's, a, you know, that's a problem. Right well, there. there's also an assumption that everyone in the communication mechanism, right, Slack or Zoom or whatever it is, is authorized to be there. And all right. of these communication mechanisms have a chat interface. And like you pointed out, DJ, usually when you see something in a chat, I think we click on it more without reservation because we assume that, oh, well, they're in our chat system. It must be okay to click on that. We've trained our users in awareness and education that to not trust everything coming from email. That same level of awareness has not transitioned as it was clear with Zoom and all these other things going on. The level of education hasn't transcended down to these other communication mechanisms. Absolutely, you know, and and I think I think there's been also a, a shift in in how we work, right? Um, you know, emails was a more of an asynchronous medium, and mm -hmm. um, and as we evolve into more you know real time exchanges, that's really the the underlying you know human you know pathos, if you will, like the behavioral change and the behavioral shift to to sort of um, instantly engage with the content that becomes available. Um, you know that, that's put in front of you, and so so when, when things show up on messaging, when things show up in a, in a collaborative document, um, there's that implicit assumption, and and on top of that, it, it, you know, there's the there's the outside in problem where people engage with a, a malicious you know document that's been shared or a, a link that's been shared. There's also the the inside out problem, you know, and, and classically, you know, organizations like to refer to this as you know, DLP, but it's it's not your classic you know data loss, right? It's it's more of uh, it's a slightly more nuanced situation when when somebody requests you for a document on Slack um, and, and, and they're a contractor that you've been working with, mm -hmm. say, for, for four months, five months, you know, you, you've gotten used to sharing information because they're working with you. Um, you don't think twice about you know, taking a document that contains you know, confidential data and putting it on that channel because it's so native to how you use that, that, that platform. 
And so, so there's the, um, you know, as much as, you know, uh, outside in is a huge problem, the inside out becomes, you know, even more of a challenge. And so, so if you think about potentially in a context over happening on, on, on Slack, um, which is, which is a, a, a use case that we've seen repeatedly in our customers, mm-hmm. um, where, where somebody just asks for things and people automatically assume that, hey, you're on Slack, I'm going to, you know, right. you know copy paste this level and send it over to you. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, and that's yeah. interesting because you know, it, with email, there's also the kind of the external. I'm trying to forge an identity, which largely we've gotten, I think, better at uh, identifying that. Right. But then there's the I've assumed someone else's identity because I've you know password spraying is usually how they get there. Right. And now it's coming from someone internally, and we've tuned some of our d- tools and technology to be able to detect that as well. But now you transfer those same scenarios down, especially the insider down into an internal communication mechanism that lives outside of email, and it could be a really bad day. Well, and I think what's more interesting with Slack is think about all the potential integration points that you have with yep. Slack, uh-huh. right? Our CRM is integrated with our Slack. Our Google Drive is integrated with our Slack. So Slack made it really, really easy to yes. get access to some of this information. And to DJ's point, if it looks like you're an insider on my Slack channel and you ask for data and I've got the integration, it's really easy to share that information mm-hmm. back out very quickly. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's it, it, it's sort of the, the classic debate between friction versus uh, security, right? I mean, you reduce friction, but um, but it's that coming at the cost of security. And uh, it, it's, it's always a difficult balance for, for a lot of the organizations as they think about, hey, I want to be able to move fast. I want to be able to move quickly. I want to share this this piece of content, um, you know, as I'm as I'm thinking about it, not even as I, you know, as a finished copy. You know, nobody's hitting saves anymore yeah. um, in, in documents, right? It's, uh, as I'm thinking about it, I'm going to hit a share button, bam, it goes out to uh, everybody on Slack. It goes out of everybody, you know, on, on emails and instantly people are now processing it differently. They're like, they jump on it. Um, and, and so, so, so there is that, that, that shift that, that, you know, to your point, uh, Matt, I think it's, uh, it, it's fully hooked in, it's easy to use and it's completely, you know, uh, all pervasive inside of the enterprise, which is part of the reason why at Armablocks we said, Hey, listen, we have to have that same mindset when we approach security, you know, Slack made it easy to integrate into all of these channels. And uh, at Armablocks, we have to come up with that approach in, in the way we integrate with, with all of these channels. We have to be just as easy. We've got to connect across all of these channels and give our you know, security team a, a more holistic view of what is truly going on across all of those channels in a, in a, in a way that's easy to you know, process and, and easy to enforce. You know, um, yeah, uh, in and, but there's, uh, there's some challenges with that if we compare it to looking at email, right? Because over the years, I mean, email is a very old technology, right? Much older than Slack, let's just say. And there's been many things built into the protocol uh, in built into our awareness and training that tries to validate an email message. You can look at the headers of an email message, for example. How, how does that transfer to Slack? Like you lose a lot of those controls when you go to Slack, right? That's right. You know, you, you're spot on. I mean, you no longer have the, uh, you, know, you know, the, the sender's email address. Uh, you know, not, you know, there's no um, IP addresses through which it's actually hopped through. You don't have SPF checks or DMARC right. checks. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got you, you. don't have any of those mechanisms. But what you do have um, on these platforms is, you know, um, you have you have the ability to introspect the uh, you know using APIs. If you are, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you are an admin, you're able to see if if it's a malicious user logging in. You do have the ability to introspect using APIs to say where did they log in from, yep. uh, which client did they use to log in from. 
and what time of day are they logging in. And you're able to get that amount of telemetry if there's an account takeover in progress. If it is an external user, um, you do have the ability to, to sort of recognize that and say that, hey, this message came in from the external user. Uh, in the case of Slack, they do have API headers that provide you with that, that level of detail. But it's not quite the same. It's not something that a security team is used to. Right, it's it's right. new sets of APIs. And those APIs are not easy to access unless you have the appropriate editions, the, the right versions. And so, so we make it easier for them to, to see that. And, and on top of it, you know, we don't want to do the same, you know, we don't want to make the same mistakes in some sense um, mm. that happened with emails, right? Yeah, emails have the, um, has evolved in over, over a long period of time. And we've learned a lot in terms of how we need to provide appropriate types of controls for emails. Um, you know, we can take those learnings and move much faster when it comes to something like Slack, where, you know, we can, um, we can use technologies like natural language understanding that says, hey, this is the context of communication that they're, they're talking about. And this is okay. And this is not okay. Let's go ahead and flag that and, and, and let the user know. And it's easier to inform a user individually saying, hey, um, you might be clicking on a link that's suspicious, or you might be sharing a file that's, uh, you know, the, that contains, uh, you know, a, a payload that, that looks, um, uh, that's still active. Uh, you, you're able to now say that quickly to that user. So from an education perspective, you're educating them while you're preventing stuff from yeah. happening as well. Yeah, making them basically aware, right? The point of awareness training, making them aware that there could be malicious threats coming in through these other mechanisms, right? Uh, which, Correct. and I think this problem is going to uh, continue because as you know, we get so much email, right? And, and our yeah. e email gets flooded and we try, I think have tried for a long time to use it for all kinds of notifications. I think Slack and these other mechanisms took off because I can take some of these things out of email now, right? When I get a ticket, I don't need an email, right? A lot of people even here have said, I just want to be notified via Slack. I'm like, that's great. That's great. Let's try and get stuff out of email, right? Because I think there's a, a better place for these communications. But what we can lose sight of very quickly is some of the protections and training that uh, that we do have inherently in email. And I love that you're interfacing with Slack via the API. Better you than me, by the way. Um, I'm sure understanding Slack's API at that level uh, is very challenging, um, but important uh, for a lot of these, not just Slack, but other technologies, right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and you're, you're spot on. And uh, the, the one of the, the ways we are, we're seeing this more, you know, you know, from Slack to the reason why we're also starting to support like OneDrive and Boxes, mm -hmm. we, you know, people assume that when, when you send a share, when you, when you click on the share button inside of one of these SaaS platforms and you say, you know, you title the document as um, uh, payroll, list of payroll information or something about, you know, a bank account information for, um, you know, for the organization, it's incredibly likely that when, you know, if they receive that notification, either, you know, in a Slack uh, notification or in an email, they look at that and they go, hey, this is directly being shared by Box. That email is going to get delivered notifications for the share right. because it's coming from the right domain. And then they open it up. It's got a link to like another doc inside. It looks like a legit document. And it says, read more over here. And people, you know, think even less, you know, than they, than they yep. would, you know, if they're looking at that email coming from uh, an external source because, hey, it's coming from OneDrive. It's coming from Box. It's coming from Google Drive. It should be legit. And, um, and so it becomes important to sort of scan those pieces as well. Like, you know, it's like, hey, somebody's sharing some document. Is there something malicious inside of that doc share? Um, you know, is this person supposed to even be sending that information, you know, both in, into the organization and outside? And, um, and having that 360 degree view can really make a difference for, for a security team. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, I, the other attack surface I've seen really pick up 
um, over this period as well, DJ. Probably a little harder to get your arms around LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, yeah. y- you know, the, the number of LinkedIn requests that I get has gone up, but I'm also seeing a lot more attachments and links embedded from people I don't know. Um, right. And in probably a harder environment to control than maybe Slack or OneDrive or Google Drive or some of those other things. But I'm seeing that there. I'm, and I'm also, I mean, Twitter is, has been notorious for this for a while. But man, the LinkedIn stuff lately has been going crazy. Yeah, you're, 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 you're right on. Um, I think the, the, the challenge, you know, the way we, we sort of have been looking at it and uh, we've gotten a, a number of our customers come to us and say, um, you know, you guys are doing this really cool job of being able to you know, centralize a lot of these things for us. Can you add a few of these other feeds? You know, a, a lot of people even come to us from a brand impersonation perspective. Like, hey, somebody's tweeting poor things about a brand and yep. can you also help us out with this? But uh, but from a, the reason, you know, we've sort of separated what is inside of the enterprises is what's outside. And, um, and classically, it's been difficult to sort of like think about LinkedIn, even though LinkedIn is mostly used for a professional network. Um, it's not something you can ask an enterprise security admin to say, hey, um, I want all of your LinkedIn's to now have this sort of pl- armor blocks plugged into your, mm-hmm. your LinkedIn feeds. Um, maybe I'm looking for a job outside and, and I'm not comfortable plugging this into my enterprise's offering. And, and, and so we've been thinking about, um, you know, how do we go beyond the enterprise offerings? And, uh, and we've got some ideas that we're working on internally to be able to, um, you know, to, to, to help, um, you know, uh, individual users so that it's not necessarily just a, in an enterprise offering, but if, if I'm a LinkedIn user and uh, my company already has armor blocks, um, I now have additional capabilities to protect my own private, um, you know, uh, channels of communication. It's sort of how one password did a really good job of being able to offer personal accounts to, to protect your, 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 you know, be your password manager. If you're inside of the enterprise, um, you know, um, so, so you now have multiple vaults, you know, your personal vault and you have the enterprise vault and you can store your credentials, you know, um, in, in a safe way across the board. Yeah, and it's interesting you know, we, in, in both LinkedIn and Twitter, you have this aspect of there are corporate owned accounts, right? You've got the corporate page in LinkedIn, you've got your corporate Twitter account. And then as an individual, you know, we don't require it, but we recommend it. Like if you're going to work here and a lot of places do like that you participate in these various social media networks. Now, LinkedIn, I think, does a much better job of securing and controlling its environment than Twitter, let's just say, right? Um, and that, But that's really hard. Like we talked about some of the fundamental things we have in email to validate messages, uh, e- even at the protocol layer. Twitter is very, very open environment. The API is very, very open. The ability to direct message people is very open. The Basically, it's easier to commit fraud on Twitter than most other platforms, right? And I'm actually surprised we haven't seen, at least I haven't seen, like more well-crafted uh, business-targeted attacks on Twitter via DMs and things like that. Most of the stuff I see, at least on Twitter DMs, it's obvious, even though I may have a higher alert on email, when I, even the marketing team's looking at these DMs, they're like, it's clearly spam, right? It's clearly fraud, right? Mm-hmm. But that could get better. And that's, that's kind of dangerous. Absolutely. I think, I think you're spot on. I think that's been one of our, our, our top asks across the board. Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we definitely see that, that evolution happen. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're right about the fact that it's going to show up on Twitter first. Um, yep. You know, it's the least you know, well-protected organization uh, when it comes to, I mean, from an offering perspective. And I think uh, LinkedIn does a better job, and that's your point. But I think 
I think the, the I think to, uh, to Matt's point, I think the LinkedIn one is more targeted. Um, mm -hmm. When you see somebody, in a, there, there's some amount of social proof that happens when you see a message that comes from uh, a person that has you know 30 other shared connections with you. And then when you look at those mm -hmm. shared connections, you automatically assume that, hey, if those people know this person, um, then this person must be legit, right? And I think that that social proof part of it is really what um, you know gets to you from a, from, a, from a networking perspective. And so I've seen now lots of these bots emerge even on the LinkedIn platform that, that we personally reported um, that said, hey, this person is, is a bot. I know this person and this person is not this person. There's another LinkedIn profile of this person floating around. So, so we're seeing that increase in, um, you know, on the on the on the LinkedIn platform as well. But, uh, but being able to tell the difference, you know, from an executive impersonation, uh, from a from a from a colleague, you know, employee impersonation, we do that really well on emails today. We're starting to do that on on, on other platforms like Slack, and it's only a matter of time before we start, you know, offering that uh, beyond these these platforms, beyond these walls to to LinkedIn and and Twitter, and pretty much every every platform that that people use to communicate one way or the other. Yeah, that, it's, that it's our, interesting. Uh, we 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 still see fraud on on LinkedIn, even though the bar is much higher from the API standpoint um, and from the bot standpoint. LinkedIn has done a fantastic job of controlling their API and in, in looking at bots. Right, not so much with Twitter, definitely less. But we see a lot of effort going into getting around those uh, controls on LinkedIn because I think the payoff is higher. Like you said, it's a more intimate, personal environment. Executives are likely to have a LinkedIn account where they may not have a Twitter account, or they may have a Twitter account, but it's you know it's just for for posting, right? It's just for outbound communications. Right. Right. Exactly. You know. Uh, and so uh, you know. So so it, it, every single data point sort of matters. You know, in terms of how people engage with those communication channels. Right. You know. It, uh, to your point about, you know, we see that, you know, a, a, a lot on email, just going back on one of the, the earlier points, uh, as you were saying that, you know, we mostly have emails under control. Um, it, I was just shaking my head a little bit over here because, um, you know, I was reflecting on something that just happened last week, you know, uh, the customer. And um, it, it, it's really hard, you know, to sort of, uh, while there are education and awareness efforts that constantly happen, um, you know, Mistakes at this point in time are happening. So you know the, the, the targeted attacks are so insidious. You know they they're very well crafted. They just show up where um, it's uh, the people just miss the smallest of details because they no longer have the ability to look over the shoulders and you know say hey you know does this look legit to you? Mm -hmm. um, we we saw you know uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars you know um, going away like that. And uh, and the hardest part is really convincing the uh, the executive team to recognize that hey listen you, you did lose some money uh, yes insurance is going to pay you that money back and I think that's a good thing yes you know so that you're from a from a liability perspective you managed to address that part of it but your premiums did now shoot up through the right. roof um, and so you know it, it's a little bit of a hard sell because most of the um, most of the teams don't want to publicly acknowledge. That yes, you know this this compromise sort of happened, and 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 that's true for across the channels, you know. And um, you know when um, I, I want to share just briefly how um, an attacker on Slack managed to do this, and uh, and you'll find this fascinating. What they did was basically um, there's a gentleman who works remotely, um, and, and I, this is you know pre-COVID, and this person always worked out of a, a Starbucks, and so um, so which meant that you know this person was in a publicly uh, you know uh, open network. And um, while we are not entirely sure if they use the appropriate, you know, uh, mechanisms to protect themselves, um, they would use Slack on a regular basis and communicate with the organization. And um, and this person went um, on a vacation for two weeks. And uh, during the two-week time period, somebody else had taken control of that Slack account and was 
in the Slack with, you know, with about, you know, 1500 people um, in the company and then asking all sorts of questions on, on all of the channels. And, uh, you know, basically got responses from most people, but uh, eventually one of the uh, colleagues who works closely flagged mm. it to the, uh, to the HR team and, and to the security team saying, this seems odd. This person's asking the same sets of questions again and again, something doesn't seem right. And then they, they dug in deeper to discover that, hey, this person's actually on, you know, on, a, on a vacation. And, um, and, and then they shut down the accounts and then you know, forced to a pay upon it and the basic hygiene mechanisms kicked in. But it took them you know, roughly about you know, five to six days to figure out that something was odd about this person. Um, and so, so it just goes to show that you know, on, a, on a platform which is more of a, an instant messaging communication style, it's, it's a lot harder to, to sort of understand what might be going on should an account get compromised from an impersonation perspective. And, and, uh, and I, I would I would like to say emails are solved, but unfortunately, um, you know, it, it is better than than Slack in terms of where the protection mechanisms are. But there's still a yeah, a, a no, lot of I agree. I don't think it's solved. I think it's better. And I think that uh, you know, I think of organizations having process to uh, pro to stop the effectiveness of those business email compromises. But not every organization you know has those processes or. Now with everyone working from home, you know, like you said, they can't easily validate and follow that process of, if I get something that's a little questionable, I go over to the finance team and I ask them, right? Well, now everyone's working from home. So am I shortcutting my process and going, oh yeah, I'm just going to process that because I, you know, that person's not getting back to me when I sent them an email or whatever, right? Uh, so I think we're in a worse state now all working from home in that uh, if you haven't kind of reinforced and re-implemented your processes, uh, you could be subject to even greater risk. Right. Exactly. You, you know, that's that, that's precisely what you know. We've been. We've, it's been on top of mind of all of the uh, the security practitioners that we're talking to, and uh, and to that end, we said, hey, listen, you know, you want to try our product out for free if you're if you are in that situation where you're overwhelmed and you want to just be able to plug in something within a few minutes and uh, and start getting some more additional telemetry that helps you. Uh, more power to you. Let's you know. Let's figure out a way to do our part in uh, in being able to help. Uh, help our, uh, you know, our colleagues out. Fantastic. Matt, any closing thoughts, questions? No, great. Thanks, DJ, for all the insight. Yeah, fantastic. And um, so hey. your product announcement, people should check back on your website. Uh, obviously, they want a, a, a demo uh, and or obtain the product. Um, but in a couple of weeks, you're going to be supporting Slack uh, in, in terms of this, right? That is correct. That's correct. And uh, it, it, we will, uh, you know, our, our website's www.armablocks.com. Uh, and we'll start adding slash uh, product name specific products. So if you search for slash Slack slash email slash you know box, you'll 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 find the appropriate landing pages for for all of those. Fantastic, DJ. Thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. That will conclude the show for today. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. We'll see you next time. <laughs>